Life with Bitcoin, a podcast where we delve into the real-life stories of people whose lives have been transformed by Bitcoin. My name is Vivian Che, and I'm your host. Every episode, we invite fascinating guests to share the experience of how Bitcoin has shaped their values, mindset, and life choices. We're not here to talk about technical analysis or price predictions. We're interested in the human side of the Bitcoin story. Whether you're already a seasoned Bitcoiner uh, or just starting to learn about this groundbreaking technology, join us as we create a welcoming space to connect and share our collective experience as Bitcoiners. Today, for the first ever episode, we have the honor to have a chat with Trent Fowler. Uh, Trent is a machine learning engineer, author, and co-host of the Futurative podcast. As an engineer, he has years of experience dealing with blockchain data and thinking about the blockchain's mechanics. Moreover, he's done extensive research and acquired first-hand knowledge and experience helping establish a quantum computing startup accelerator in Colorado. Trent, welcome to the show and thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Um, as you know, it's a Bitcoin podcast, so let's start from your story. Uh, what is your background and how, what have you been doing for the past few years? Sure. So I suppose I could just walk you through my professional career. I, I started at a company called Digital Assets Data, and there I was just doing bespoke projects for clients. So people would just come in and be like, Facebook just announced the Libra project. What impact is that going to have on Bitcoin's price? So I would do what's called an event study where I try to come up with some plausible projection of Bitcoin's price, and then I draw a line in the sand when Facebook announced Libra and said, does this depart from my model in any way? Uh, we, we use like decision trees to, to try to predict Bitcoin price, a lot, a lot of price prediction or price analysis of various sorts of things. And that's, that's actually its, its own deep, dark rabbit hole, how you deal with time series data. There's some pretty, pretty hairy math that goes along with that. But I spent a lot of time doing what's called time series analysis at digital assets and building kind of simple models and tools. You know, like I, I put together just a simple Python program that could tell you when different mining rigs were profitable based on the price of Bitcoin based on the hash rate. It would just take all this stuff and say, yep, the S9 is profitable, or nope, the S9 is not profitable. Uh, stuff like that, just lots of one-off projects, which, which taught me a lot. And then I moved to a company called Nutrien, which is a gigantic company. And so it was like startup with 20 people over to this multinational conglomerate with thousands of people in it. And I was on their machine learning team, and they are predominantly an agricultural company. They are in the business of providing things like nitrogen or soluble potash to corn farmers and wheat farmers. But they have this enormous customer base, and they were trying to modernize and become kind of a new world company. And so they were standing up a division that was focused on machine learning to do things like customer segmentation. So you, you can take these huge data sets with all this information about different customers and where they are and what they're growing and e even natural language outputs like reviews of products, and then you can cluster them in different ways. And then I went to uh, a blockchain analytics company where I was a data scientist, and I did a lot of like web scraping projects where I was trying to, uh, I was I was working on attributions. So they were trying to build what they call the Google of blockchain data, and it's exactly what it sounds like. So by default, blockchain data is just not very human readable. Like you've got to you got to really spend a lot of time dealing with it to even know what you're looking at, and it's hard to develop intuitions for it or to see patterns. And they were trying to ameliorate that problem by ingesting huge amounts of blockchain data and putting it into a format that's easier to understand. You can just look at it and see this kind of network of activities. And so I was on the team that, that worked on a lot of those algorithms. And so one of the things I did was a big web scraping project where I just pulled down thousands of attributions that are already on the Internet. People just put up, like, their their DAP project or their DAO project, and they just list like 500 addresses that are associated with it. So one easy thing you can do is just build a, a system that goes and pulls all that off the websites so that you've got, you can start with those attributions and then you try to use algorithms to tie those addresses to other addresses, and then you can identify large segments of the blockchain and have a clearer idea of what's going on. So really just all kinds of different projects. And right now I'm at a, at a company that does uh, aerospace work. Uh, right now you're in the rocket science business. Yeah, yeah, space. I'm learning all about rockets and orbital mechanics. And yeah, they, they told me early on, they're like, you're going to have to learn some orbital mechanics. And I was like, all I needed was an excuse to learn orbital mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> I get to learn new space math? That sounds great. Talking about career change, wow. Yeah, so 
I guess to focus on Bitcoin specifically, I, I don't actually recall when I first heard about it. My, my brother was into it for a while. He was trading Bitcoin along with a bunch of shit coins and altcoins back in, I don't know, 2016, maybe 2017, something like that. So I, I'd probably heard about it prior to that, but that's when I re recall it becoming uh, real to me, I, I guess. I, he, he knew people who were making a lot of money. He was making a lot of money. I started looking into it. And I've maintained an interest in it ever since. So when I became a machine learning engineer in 2018, the first startup that hired me was called Digital Assets Data, and they were building a platform for investors who were interested in the crypto space. So I did a lot with Bitcoin price data and built predictive models and did event studies and all this sort of thing. And in, in the intervening years, I've just maintained that fascination with it and with the ways in which it's going to change uh, society. So... I actually, I'm not there now, but I also worked at another blockchain analytics company uh, for about a year, uh, last year actually, in, in 2021. And through my podcast, the Futurati podcast, we've interviewed, you know, Lynn Alden and Peter McCormick and all sorts of luminaries in this space. So I, I find the technology fascinating. I find the phenomenon fascinating. And it's one that I'm happy to be exploring. What kind of made you click with Bitcoin? I suppose just getting deeper and deeper into the fundamentals. So in the beginning, when you are just suddenly hit with all these, this panoply of different cryptocurrencies, it's, it's kind of overwhelming and you don't have what you need to make distinctions between them. But as time has gone on, I've read lots of books like Alan Farrington and Sasha Meyer's Bitcoin is Venice. And I participate in a book club called Bitcoin Venetians where we re like we just finished up the sovereign individual. And so over the years, I've deepened my knowledge of blockchain technology, specifically the broader crypto space, and then ancillary subjects like monetary economics. And over time, I've, I've become, I, I wouldn't call myself a Bitcoin maxi exactly. Um, I, there are other projects that I find interesting as well, but I've come to believe that Bitcoin is the best at solving the problem that it's set out to solve, and that it really doesn't have any peers, with, with maybe one or two exceptions. Uh, in, in trying to fill the space that it's filling. So I, I guess I've sort of come around to being like a soft maxi or quasi maxi. I, I don't know what the right word for it would be, but I, I'm pretty bullish on Bitcoin long term. And I do think that it stands apart from, from the, the broader crypto ecosystem. So I support the Bitcoin, not crypto uh, division, the, the slogan that, that started to pop up on places like Twitter. Do you still remember your initial reaction when you first heard of Bitcoin? Do you consider yourself that you, you, you self-orange-pilled? Um, and what were some of the initial reactions when you even heard of this technology? Yeah, I, I don't recall exactly how I felt about it initially. Like the first time somebody sat me down and, and said, oh, you're a blockchain, you, you mine these coins. I, I don't exactly know how I felt about it, but I've always been, uh, I, I guess I've, I've sort of pre-orange-pilled. Like I'm, I'm pretty libertarian. I'm, I'm pretty on board with the idea of separating money and state. And so I don't think it took a lot to push me over and, and push me down that rabbit hole. So I, I couldn't tell you exactly the sequence of events or how it unfolded, but I, I doubt it took a lot of convincing. Um, that's not to say there aren't still questions. You, know, you get these questions like, well, what if every government on earth colludes to ban it? Would it have any future? Maybe not. So it's, it's not to say that, I, that the future is guaranteed for Bitcoin, but yeah, I, I've always been sympathetic to the underlying ideals and to the, the technology that Satoshi was trying to create and, and the goals that he was trying to get accomplished with it. So I don't think it took me very long to, to be orange-pilled. I, I was uh, like soft orange-pilled before that. I came into it kind of half orange-pilled. Right. It kind of reminded me of a topic that we were previously discussing. Uh, you, you shared that there were there essentially two types of Bitcoiners. One type is that the people who already have the set of values that Bitcoin kind of represents. Uh, and then the later on, and later on discovered Bitcoin and basically clicked right away. And then the other type, type two, are people who kind of came into Bitcoin first and then later adapted new ways of these fundamental beliefs. So what do you think are some of the fundamental values that Bitcoiners have and which group, you kind of already answered that question, but which group of these two do you think you belong? I'm more sympathetic, obviously, with the prior group. So I came to Bitcoin with many of the values already pre-installed. And I've never sat down and tried to create a comprehensive list of all the values. I'm sure such a thing exists somewhere. But it's, it's things like sovereignty, being able to control your own currency, hold it in your head. It, it's the idea of not having a monetary system which is set up and beholden to governments which are able to manipulate the currency, to, uh, to tax people through, uh, to, to implement hidden taxes in the form of things like inflation, uh, and just generally a pro-freedom bent. And I, I would say one of the interesting developments in recent years, particularly last year, was the rise of progressive Bitcoiners and even a, a few socialist Bitcoiners who, you know, you, you wouldn't think they would be amenable to the, the 
the values that are baked into the protocol, but many of them are. And, and you know, if, if you don't want to take my money away from me, then I, I think we probably have sensible, uh, sensible common ground to proceed upon. So I would say that it's, it's sort of what you might think of as broadly libertarian principles. I, I mean, I don't think every Bitcoiner has to be a libertarian or that uh, they all are, or that's the only way to approach the project. Uh, there are plenty of progressives who are very smart Bitcoiners. But uh, I do think that if you hold those values, the idea that the state should not be in control of money or, or much else, and that you know, people should, be, should have some sort of mechanism for controlling their finances and their financial future, which is very difficult to extort from them, then you will be more sympathetic to the, to the actual message, because that seems to be what Satoshi was trying to accomplish. He, he was writing all this in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis and the appalling bailouts that we saw on, on the other side of that and the overt hypocrisy that was on display there. And the, the white paper came out shortly afterwards. And of course, famously, the first message in the very first block was some sort of headline to the effect that uh, the Bank of England is getting its second bailout, something along those lines. So it's pretty clear what his his goals were. And, and, and well, I guess I should say their, their goals and motivations. We, we don't know if it was a guy or girl or a group of people. So whoever it was, it's, it's not hard to read, the, uh, read their motives in this technology. Do you have a hypothesis on who Satoshi is? <laughs> we sometimes ask that uh, for fun and, and get a range of, uh, of answers. No, I, I don't know. I, I suppose Hal Finney is probably a good guess. Uh, yeah, he was, if, I, if I recall my lore correctly, he received the first Bitcoin transaction. He was an early Bitcoiner. He was really prescient in a lot of ways. He was talking about NFTs back in, I don't know, 2008 or nine. He was talking about the possible impact of the energy mixture that mining would have. And I, I don't know. I, I think that's a plausible guess. I think it was a plausible guess. So no, I don't. I don't have any particularly. Uh, I don't have any deep insights into that. But that that would be my guess. Um, does your background in science impact how you understand Bitcoin? If yes, in in what way? So, to the extent that I have a scientific background, I suppose it's mostly neuroscience. So that's I went to school for psychology and I studied neuroscience rather a lot. That wasn't hugely helpful in understanding Bitcoin. But I've always had sort of a technical streak. Uh, I, I have always found computers really fascinating, and I, I didn't know much about them when I first started getting into Bitcoin. I've learned a lot since then. I mean, I'm an engineer now, so uh, I, I understand the underlying protocol pretty well. But I, I came into it sort of on the value side of it. I just saw that there was this way of creating a network where consensus is arrived at in a distributed fashion, that it was trust minimized. It's not exactly trustless. I don't think that's a, we, we shouldn't call it trustless. It, it is, there is still trust in the system, but it's trust minimized. Um, it, it's more pseudonymous. It's possible to transact with people in a way that's very hard to trace. Uh, again, not totally impossible, but you, you can hide your tracks a lot better with something like Bitcoin. And so given that I cared about privacy, I cared about sovereignty, I cared about uh, freedom and the impact that you know, monetary policy or economic policy has on a broader society, I was sort of ripe for that. Uh, since I became a machine learning engineer and a data scientist, obviously I've just learned a lot more about cryptography and about uh, computing and about distributed systems. And so in the past couple of years, I'd say the past four or five years, I've been able to, to substantially deepen my understanding of the technical fundamentals because as part of my day job, I'm just interacting with computers and thinking about these sort of things uh, pretty routinely. So uh, I wouldn't say that my formal scientific background contributed all that much to it. Uh, I came in because of the values. But through a happy coincidence and uh, synergy, if you want to use that word, I have since become highly technical and have been able to appreciate the way it actually operates. You just said um, you, you think there's some trust remains in the system. Do you want to elaborate on that? Why do you think there's when everybody thinks it's trustless? Well, there, there's, I suppose, a trivial sense in which, you know, like you don't most of us aren't running our own nodes. Uh, most of us, you know, couldn't build a hardware wallet if we wanted to. So there's still these little modicums of trust in the system like, you know, I have a cold card from uh, CoinKite over there, and it comes in a sealed bag and, and all of that. But I'm sure there's some way a clever person could insert malware onto it and reseal it in some way. You know, so it, it's pretty hard unless you're going to like build your own system from the the rivets on up to ensure that at no point you trust anyone to do anything. Uh, like I haven't audited the Bitcoin code. I know lots of people have. I've read some of it, and I I figure by now they would have found any major exploits that are there. But I mean, I I couldn't. I wouldn't put my hand on the Bible and swear that there aren't any, you know. So I, st I still think there's a little bit of trust. I think trust minimized uh, is probably the better and more accurate way of describing it. Uh, I think if you call it trustless, you just sort of leave yourself open to this nitpicking bullshit, and it's really tiresome to, to have to field these all the time and explain, yes, okay, fine, we probably do trust the coin. We, we probably do trust the wallet manufacturers to a certain extent. Um, and I, I think just on the whole, trust minimized is more accurate. 
Right. Any personal experience or anecdotes from uh, using Bitcoin in your daily life, uh, your from your conversations with other people in your personal life and business? I suppose that I would just add my experience to the claim that it's still very early. So almost everybody I talk to about it has a, a very rudimentary understanding of, of what it is and how it works. And we're still answering a lot of basic questions. I mean, I, I referenced earlier, like, what if every government on Earth bans it all at once? Like, what, what sort of future will it have? I, I think that we still have a long way to go to educating people about this. And that's just an iterative process. It's sort of inescapably very slow because first people have to hear about it. They have to be skeptical for a while. They have to, you know, look into it a little bit, read a couple of articles, stumble upon a podcast like mine or yours or Peter McCormick's or, or whomever's, you know, talk to their uh, Bitcoiner friends and, and sort of build up this knowledge base. And you're asking them to believe something that's, I think from a normie's perspective, pretty radical. Like the idea that there should not be a central authority in charge of issuing money, that deflation actually isn't all that bad, that, it matters, uh, the privacy matters, and that security matters. Like, some of this just relies on underlying premises that take a while to percolate out throughout a culture. And because most of them are not endorsed in any particularly strong way by people, they, they've got a large inferential distance to cover. They, they've first got to think about, you know, do I even understand what the technology is? Do I understand why this is solving a real problem? Do I understand why this might be a solution or might not be. Like, what, what questions do I have and what are the answers? So it's just kind of a long process, and I suspect it will be a while. Although I do have some hope that with better UI and UX and s some slicker applications built on top, maybe something like Lightning, people will start using Bitcoin and not even know it. So I, I tend to think that that is when you've achieved victory, not so much when everybody endorses the premises explicitly in words in their head, but when they're using it and don't even necessarily realize that that's what's happening. They don't think of themselves as Bitcoiners. They just interact with the blockchain and the Lightning Network in their day-to-day -day lives and couldn't even tell you how it works in the same way that the Internet functions. I mean, we all use it, but what, one person in a thousand could explain to you what TCP or IP are or how packets pass back and forth or what a browser does when you type a URL into it. So I, I don't think we should be trying to achieve total saturation, I don't think societies change that way. It's usually a vanguard of people, and then everyone else sort of adopts it by default and thinks of it as the way it's always been. And that's that's when you will uh, that's when you will have achieved victory when it, when a government couldn't wrest it out of our hands if they wanted to. I want to tap into your expertise in the scientific world. I found this in, on your website. You said uh, we're in the early days of quantum computing. Its transformative potential will be seen sooner rather than later. This is a strong argument, in my opinion, and I assume you know something that most people don't. So maybe give us some insights on uh, what is quantum computing in very simple language and what has made you drawn this conclusion. So if you explain to me like I'm a five-year-old, how would you approach this? Yeah, so I, I, I can only explain it like a five-year-old. I, I have consciously avoided getting super into the physics because I'm, I'm kind of I'm prone to going down those rabbit holes, and so I don't have time for it. So I've, I've had to pull back, even though I've really wanted to get into it. But basically, you've got a, a computational paradigm that is built on a fundamentally different kind of operation, a different physical unit. So with classical computing, obviously, it's transistors. So you've got this little, it's usually a capacitor or an electrode, something kind of like that. And it can either be on or off, and that corresponds to a one or a zero. And then you can build this up gradually into progressively uh, broader and broader kinds of abstractions until you have the internet and you've got Facebook and you've got you know Netflix recommendations or whatever. With quantum computing, you're dealing with a different sort of thing. And it's built on what's called a qubit, which is just a quantum bit. And they have fundamentally different physical properties. For, for example, they can be entangled. So the state of one bit will impact the state of another bit, that's, or a qubit rather, that's very far away. They can be entangled, which is not something a classical, um, which is not something a transistor can be. They can't be entangled. Uh, and then you also have, uh, they can exist in superpositions. And this is, this is especially the part where I don't really understand it, because people say, that means it can explore the space of possibilities much more quickly, and I'm told that's not right. That's a common misunderstanding, so I don't want to promulgate that. But essentially, the TLDR of it is that because of these two properties, superposition and entanglement, they can networks of these qubits can handle computations that classical computers can't. So, well, I, I want to issue a disclaimer at the beginning. I don't have any particular training in quantum physics or quantum computing. I'm an enthusiast, and I've read a lot about it, and I interview people on it, but I don't have a physics background or, or anything like that. So I, I don't want to claim to be an expert when I'm not. But that having been said, I've given it a fair bit of thought. And 
I, I've come to believe that quantum computing will probably have pretty major economic implications on a relatively short time frame, and that could be eight or ten years. I mean, it could be 20 or 30. It's really hard to prognosticate these things, but I don't think it's 100 years away. I don't think it's 50 years away. I think it's, it's going to be much sooner than that. And this is, I don't know if it's exactly a minority view, but I do get a lot of pushback on this. So I've, I've got some Bitcoiner friends who will sometimes poke fun at me by sharing these proofs that there will never be a general purpose quantum computer. You're never going to have a quantum computer that can, you know, answer email or play Doom or browse the Internet or, or something like that. And that, that's just completely irrelevant to my read of the technology and its potential. So the reason I think that quantum computing is going to be transformative on a relatively short time frame, in part, is because it's emerging and maturing in a world that is already shot through with classical computing. So what I mean is people will often try to dismiss quantum computing by saying that it's in the equivalent of the transistor era for classical computing. So you think 60s, 70s, they're building these computers with vacuum tubes and they fill up an entire room and a bug is actually literally a bug, like a moth crawling through the system. Like, you know, these were early and primitive days and you really just couldn't do that much with them. And so I think the implication is that given how primitive the quantum computing on offer today is, we've got 50 years before it becomes useful in some way. And I just don't think that follows uh, for the reason I just mentioned, because the world is already saturated with classical computing. So I think that means the economics is different. So the case goes roughly like this. You've got a world that is already, a modern world that is largely built on classical computing. So we have computing pipelines for you know, bioinformatics and for finance and for a billion other things, right? And those pipelines are shot through with computational bottlenecks. So there are all sorts of places when you're trying to run a protein folding simulation or if you're Goldman Sachs and you're running a, uh, an estimate of the covariance on a universe of stocks, something like that. These calculations can take weeks, can take months sometimes. And what I see the potential of quantum computing largely being in the immediate term is in solving those sorts of problems. So you do not need a quantum computing that is as robust as classical computing. You don't need general purpose quantum computers to realize billions of dollars of value. What you need are these small qubit systems, maybe 20 or 30 qubits, which is really not all that far away, that are able to solve particular problems in these classical computing pipelines. So you've got, I alluded to Goldman Sachs earlier, where they're, they're running this incredibly complex financial model. One part of that takes a month to finish. Well, what if you could, you could finish it in 15 minutes or 15 seconds instead? Right? You don't need a full, robust, Turing-complete system for that to be really valuable. You could wrap a startup around that, just, again, like a, a very specialized 20 or 30 qubit system that solves that particular problem. An API, uh, uh, Goldman Sachs could hit it over an API. I don't know what they'd pay per month for that, but I bet it's a fair bit. And you can play this story forward for things like materials design, for, for uh, running like pharmaceutical simulations, developing new kinds of drugs, that sort of thing. So I think that the economic forces which face this new emerging computing paradigm are fundamentally different. And I think for that reason, they will be able to add value on a relatively short time frame. What are the kinds of ca calculations that quantum computers are especially good at? And it's, it's things that revolve around certain kinds of linear algebra op operations or certain kinds of optimization functions. They're really good at, at finding like a minimum or a maximum value in certain kinds of systems. Uh, they're very good at differential equations. They're very good at factorization, which is what cryptography is built on. Now, that may not sound like much. That may sound kind of niche. But if you take those one at a time, you see that the implications are actually quite vast. So for something like linear algebra, that's, that's what the entire science of machine learning is built on. And quantum computers will not necessarily be good at will not necessarily be superior to classical computers at every one of those calculations. But if it speeds up a couple things, I mean, you get neural networks that train faster, you get certain kinds of like segmentation or clustering or principal component analysis that are much quicker, which opens up a whole range of different machine learning applications that you could build on top of that. For something like factorization, I mean, that, that's fairly obvious. If, if it can break the encryption that most of the world is built on, that's problematic, and we should be thinking about that. And there are, in fact, research groups that are working right now on post-quantum cryptography. We've done some interviews uh, at the Futurati podcast on exactly that sort of thing. With something like an optimization function, that may sound kind of trivial. It's okay, so you can find a maximum or a minimum value, but a lot of really complex and thorny problems, really, really valuable problems, are just exactly that kind of thing. So you're trying to find the most efficient 
distribution of sensors for relaying information between computers in a node, or you're trying to find the uh, you're trying to find like the most valuable portfolio out of a universe of possible portfolios. You're trying to maximize or minimize a particular function. Well, you can start to see that that's actually pretty valuable. It sounds sort of trivial when you just say it the way I said it at the beginning, but when you start thinking, okay, well, that, that could impact the way portfolios are constructed. That could impact every computer that uses encryption. That could impact, I don't know, 30% of all the machine learning applications that are running now. You see that even though it's pretty specialized, it's highly impactful, and that's not even counting things like materials design or being able to simulate really complex drugs instead of spending months and months working in a lab to create them. So, I mean, you could have personalized medicines that are designed specifically for you and for no one else on Earth that have effectively no side effects and treat something like cancer or some, some aggressive disease. You, you can see that when you start playing it out, a lot has to go right for all of that to come to fruition, but it plausibly could. I don't see any reason why it couldn't, and the impact could be enormous. I mean, think, think about how much is spent on pharmaceuticals research or you know, on financial institutions trying to play the stock market or the kinds of materials we could design. Uh, you know, what will that make possible? I mean, I don't know, all, all kinds of different things. Talking about t new technology, it was up to a few months ago that I started to understand what was the real context around the Y2K crisis. I was almost technically Zoomer, <laughs> uh, generational-wise. I heard the term sometime once in a while, but I really never really understood what it was about. And for those of you who are kind of in the newer generations, the Y2K crisis, also known as the Millennium Buck, uh, was a concern that computer systems would malfunction or fail when the clock stuck midnight on January 1st, 2000. And this was due to low memories of computers at the time and the programming of dates only stored the last two digits of the years and not all four of the digits. As a result, these systems would interpret the year 2000 as 1900, leading to potential errors and malfunctions. And then for governments, um, the, the, the issue was first known, uh, noted by a computer scientist around like 50, in the 50s, like late 50s. It was an issue for a while, but people didn't think about it until like the start of 90, 1990s, I guess. So governments, businesses, and organizations around the world spent billions of dollars to fix this issue and pr prevent potential disasters. Despite of all the preparations, the Y2K crisis ultimately had little, in, little impact on the world. So I guess the takeaway is that seems like such a silly thing with today's context of tech. So I'm wondering if there's a similarity in the areas of quantum computing where the Bitcoin network seems unbreakable right now with the computing power that's available to us at the moment. Is Bitcoin ecosystem subject to drastic tech changes that we cannot foresee? So in other words, is something like quantum computing a threat to the Bitcoin network and how it functions? And does quantum computing enables potential hacks, hypothetically, for the Bitcoin network? Yeah, I tend to think that the answer is yes. I do think that it plausibly poses a pretty major challenge to the long-term integrity of the Bitcoin network. I, I've honestly, I've kind of gotten mixed news on that. So I've talked to a couple of different people about it who specialize in this particular thing. So I think two episodes ago, we interviewed Anastasia Marchenkova, who does quantum computing. She's a quantum computer researcher. She's really fantastic. And the very next episode was with Michael Strike, who's a cybersecurity expert. And he's not a quantum computing expert, but he's sort of an enthusiast. And he's working at the Quantum Ledger. And they're trying to build a layer one in a cryptocurrency on top of it that's quantum hardened from the beginning. And that will never be, that will never be exposed to having its encryption broken by a quantum computer. And what I got, the impressions I got from those two conversations were kind of conflicting. So Anastasia seems to think that, yeah, it could eventually be a problem, but she didn't seem particularly worried about it. And if I recall, and this is just from memory, but it, it's something along the lines of the algorithms that you would use to break that encryption, even though they're much faster than classical alternatives, they still kind of take a while in their current form, and it wouldn't be all that difficult to like increase the, the hash size to, put, to continue to put them out of reach, con to continue to put the Bitcoin network out of reach of the quantum algorithms. Uh, so you could just like double the size of the, of the hashing functions, and that would, for all intents and purposes, secure it against quantum computing. Uh, Michael Strike seemed a lot more worried about it, and moreover, he seemed to think that it's just kind of 
hardening hardening the Bitcoin network is sort of a non-starter, that there's just no real way to get people signed onto it. There's just no real way to, to fork the network or to solve those coordination problems. And I'm not really sure where I would come down on that. I do think it's it's definitely a plausible threat. It's something that should be uh, that people should be thinking about. I'm sure they are. I mean, I, it, it can't be that people aren't thinking seriously about it. There have to be BIPs out there, proposals to improve the Bitcoin protocol that take this into account. I really haven't spent too much time looking into them. It's, it's probably something at some point or another I will, I will have to take a look at and maybe do an episode on. But yes, I think that uh, in, in summary, that it is something we should be worrying about. And people who know more about this than me should be thinking about how to secure the Bitcoin network going forward if we expect it to be you know, one of the main monetary layers for the economies of the world. Do you see a way out of this, either preventive or doing something that make the Bitcoin network quantum proof, I guess. Quantum proof? Yeah. So I know that there are proposals for post-quantum cryptography. There are people thinking about that. There are labs devoted to that. And there are a couple of startups that are doing that sort of thing. I don't know how successful they've been, but I do know people are working on those things. And so the question is, is there any way to get the Bitcoin network to go along with it? Because... You know, Bitcoiners being what they are, they're they're pretty slow to change things. There was this whole block size wars, you know, five or six years ago when they wanted to increase the block size, and everybody said absolutely not. So I, I think there's sort of two parts that need to come together. First of all, you actually have you need to have the encryption protocol, and then you need to have a way of incorporating that in the Bitcoin network. I, I think the former is I wouldn't say solved, but I think good progress is being made on that. I'm less sanguine about the possibilities for the second part. I've got to think that if you just set, you know, a bunch of Bitcoiners down and said, look, it's going to be possible to take all the Bitcoin and, and there's not going to be any defense against this. So either we fix this or we move to Zcash or something. I've got to think that if you did that, it would be possible to convince them of things, but maybe not. Like maybe, maybe some there will be enough people who just don't buy it and won't go along with the changes. Maybe it'll it'll. Uh, tear the, the network in two, or there'll be some sort of partition or, or a, another Bitcoin cash scenario. I mean, I really couldn't tell you. But those are the two things that need to happen. We need to actually have the technology, and then we need to get it incorporated into the existing layer one. Uh, of the two, I, I suspect the second one will be harder, but maybe I'll be surprised. I see, I see. Well, maybe that's going to be the next the next war around Bitcoin would be something like a quantum the, war. The encryption wars, yeah. The, ha the hash wars. <laughs> Talking about your specialty in, in uh, artificial intelligence. I've been interested in artificial intelligence for quite some time. When I was, I was living in South Korea for a couple of years, around 2009 to 2011, I think, something like that. And I had a fair bit of free time. This was pre-kids and all that, so you know, I didn't have much to do. And I was really fascinated by the AI safety debate, this idea that plausibly we could someday have AI systems that recursively self-improve, that are able to make modifications to their own underlying source code, which could give them increased capacities, and that this might have um, an exponential shape, that increased capacities mean they can make more changes, which gives them more capacities, which means they can make more changes. None of that's guaranteed. Like, I mean, it could just be that recursion doesn't get very far before it levels off. I mean, this is all, it's all fairly speculative, but it struck me that it's at least worth worrying about, given that we've got mathematical specifications which allow for that kind of thing, given that we've got people working on artificial general intelligence and making incredible strides. It, it seemed like it would, it would be worth having some people thinking about how ethics, how the ethical architecture of such an agent would function, and in particular how it would stay stable over billions of potential rewrites. Like, how do you start with a little seed that's safe, and then it would, when it becomes vastly more powerful than you, is still safe? What does that even mean? There's a lot of interesting philosophical territory to cover there. So I became interested in that. And I, I don't really like being a dilettante. I don't, I don't like uh, talking about things I don't understand very well. So I decided to get into the math, and I got some discrete math textbooks and started teaching myself logic and probability and set theory and, and combinatorics and all of this sort of stuff. And that's sort of the way that it stayed until about 2016 when I, I embarked on what I call the STEM punk project. So I decided I wanted to learn more about technical subjects. And I devised a curriculum for myself that covered computing, electronics, mechanics, and artificial intelligence. Each one was to last three months, so it's you know four modules, three months, that's a year. And I blogged about it and then published a book about it in 2017 called The Stempunk Project. So I, I picked up a lot of knowledge there because I read several prominent AI textbooks like uh, what, Artificial Intelligence and Modern Approach by Russell and Norvig. And 
Then I didn't make a whole lot more progress after that until I became a machine learning engineer in 2018. And it's, it's important to note that machine learning and artificial intelligence aren't quite the same thing. AI is a much broader term. It's just any attempt to build an intelligent machine, whereas machine learning tends to use statistics. It's just, it's, to a first approximation, it's just the application of certain statistical algorithms to data sets. And I have done some work in natural language processing. So that's uh, like my capstone project in the data science program I went through was a generative algorithm. So I trained it on Shakespeare, and then I had it output new Shakespeare, and I called it Fakespeare. So I thought that was that was kind of fun, and I've I've been interested in natural language processing ever since. You seem to have a super broad trajectory of, of random, I guess, somewhat connected career choices. And in my opinion, those are like super future-proof areas. So how was your experience changing over a career in dabble into so many industries? So it's it's not been entirely voluntary that I have such a broad background, but. It's been very interesting, and it does give me unique insights into lots of those different things. And I've had a, a fair bit of success in taking my background in like education. Like when I was in Korea, I was teaching English, so I'm pretty good at just breaking things down. And I, li- I like mm-hmm. public speaking and stuff like that. And I was a writer as well. So everywhere I've gone, I've found ways of leveraging those prior skills to find success in the new roles, uh, even as I'm learning new engineering things. So that's it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's been challenging. I, I don't. It's not for the faint of heart. You know. You know, there's been a feast and famine dynamics around here for for quite some time. But I've gotten a look into lots of different industries and technologies, and it's served me well. I see. Let me ask you this on behalf of many other Bitcoiners out there. I know there are so many people in the space that are stacking are looking into career transitions to escape either fiat roles or move in the industry that's more future proof for them. Um, but thinking along the line of AI, if Bitcoiners want to change jobs and become more future proof in their career, um, what are some of the areas that you can point out for Bitcoiners to consider? I, I do think uh, I do think crypto is here to stay, and blockchain technologies are going to have an important part of the future. But to the point about future proofing, you should understand that uh, these technologies are, are still very nascent, and the companies are very nascent. Like I said, I've been laid off twice from two different crypto companies, so you know that could happen. So just just be prepared. If you really want to work in the space, I applaud you and wish you the best of luck. But you should understand that. It's very tough, and it can be very unforgiving. Uh, you could do an excellent job, and they could tell you you did an excellent job and still fire you because uh, they just they're running out of money, or there's a bear market that's sweeping the entire earth, and there's you know they just don't know if they're going to be able to survive. That stuff happens all the time. Good people get fired all the time. So just understand that it it will probably be a, a bumpy ride, no matter how good you are. Yeah, exactly. Except for the general economy, AI remains a big threat and even more so than ever. It, it, it has been a hugely debated topic and people in all industries have shared their common concerns of, of loss of jobs in society in general and change in human brains and how we process information and navigate through life. Uh, which seems like this has already happened to the younger generations growing up with social media, internet, and so on. And recently with ChatGPT, I'm sure you've dabbled into that space as well. We we saw a lot of fears around previously rather creative roles or creative tasks like writers or consultants are being decently replaced with practically free AI for now. And how do you approach AI's impact on humanity in general in the next few decades? I, well, so there's a couple of different ways you could approach that. So I, I'm on record saying that AI safety is definitely something to be worried about and to spend time and money thinking about. So that is more a concern about the possibility of a super intelligence. So something that's much smarter than the average human or much smarter than any human that's ever lived maybe smarter than any 50 people you could put together. Like, how do you interact with or bargain with an agent like that? So that, that's one thing you can think about, and it's one thing I've, I've thought a lot about over the prior 10 years or so. The more immediate concern is, uh, in my view, something like industrial quantities of propaganda coming out. And as it happens, we recorded an episode last night on this. So my co-host and I, Thomas Fry, sat down and we shared screens on Zoom, and we actually tried chat GPT as, as we were talking and recording the episode. So that'll be out Tuesday, I think, and, and we've got more developed thoughts there. But I, I think the more immediate concern is actually not displacement. It's being able to generate huge amounts of pretty convincing 
propaganda. So, so what, the first thing we did was had it write an essay on why Donald Trump is the greatest president we've ever had. And what came out of it was pretty convincing. It's like, well, you know, his foreign policy record's pretty good. Like, he appointed a lot of conservative Supreme Court judges. That's going to be kind of important. Like, it was pretty convincing. And then we turned around and said, now explain to me why he's the worst president we've ever had. And they're like, well, he's pugnacious and inconsistent, and he's always tweeting all the time. And it's very convincing, right? And it took me two seconds to do. Like, you don't need humans uh, you, don't, you don't need humans to do that sort of thing. You will be able to pump this stuff out in quantities that have never been seen before. And to some extent, we've experienced that with the 2016 election and social media scandals and the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So we don't have no experience with that, but I think we're going to hit a scale that's unlike anything we've ever seen before and unlike anything our civilization has ever had to weather. And what worries me about it is that for both of those essays, about half my family would be convinced by it. So like if I showed it to half my family that Donald Trump is the greatest, it would reinforce their beliefs that, you know, he's the greatest president and we, we should vote for him. And for the other half, if I showed them the he's the worst president, they'd say, yep, it's awful. We, we've got to do whatever it takes to, to keep him out of that. And you, I mean, you could imagine, you know, using this sort of thing to really spin some pretty dense and compelling, seductive narratives that, that will trap people and with with super precise targeting through something like Twitter or Facebook, I mean, you can really tailor the message these people are seeing. And it's not that hard to get outside of it, outside of that bubble, if you know the bubble's there and you try. It's not that hard to avail yourself of other news sources, but a lot of people don't. They're very passive. They just kind of scroll through, right? And if you're not trying to pierce that bubble, you just sort of by default are stuck in it. And it can shape your worldview and your perception of the way the country is going and the economy is going in ways that are really insidious and subtle. And you've got to be very careful about it. And I think that part of that solution is technological. It's just more transparency in the content moderation policies. It's maybe open sourcing the algorithms. I don't know how much that would help, but maybe something like that. But some of it's got to be cultural. You, you've just got to take more responsibility for the things you're consuming. You've got to take more responsibility for your own privacy. Like we, we need stronger norms around these things, and I think people need to be better educated about the dangers. So 10 years ago, nobody thought anything about putting pictures of their kids on Facebook or Twitter or like checking in on Facebook and making their location. Nobody cared, right? But they, then people get murdered by stalkers who can find that you're at this Taco Bell or the Starbucks and kill you. Like, and so these stories emerge and, and people start to hear about them and to develop defenses. And I think that we just need to be a little bit more aggressive about that. So it's largely going to be cultural. Uh, so I, I, think, I think that's probably the most immediate problem. To address the unemployment question, I, that's always a possibility. But I am not super worried about it, at least not for me or for any of the people that I know. So I, I've been playing around with ChatGPT to do things like blog posts or copywriting, and it's, it's reasonably good. Like the, the bottom 30 or 40% of content creators probably should be worried about that. Uh, that's not me, and I don't know many people in that strata, so I'm not really worried about it. But you know, those people maybe should start shopping around. But I, I don't think that we're going to actually see large-scale unemployment as a result of ChatGPT. And I, I think there's a couple plausible reasons for that. Uh, one reason is that for the foreseeable future, they may just still be pretty specialized tools that are kind of tricky to use in a way that's consistent. So if you know how to engineer the prompts that you feed to ChatGPT, you can be pretty confident about the result you'll get, and you can get those results consistently. But it's actually really, really sensitive to the wording that you feed it, which means that if you're wanting to use it to like write marketing copy, it's a pretty delicate thing that you've got to do. And there's often a lot of tweaking and tinkering with it that has to be done to get it to 100%. So what I think will likely happen is, probably not this year, but maybe the next year or the next couple of years, it will be more and more common for me to use it to generate a first draft. I think that, that that's actually going to be, that's still going to leave a lot of work for all of us to do because editing is, it's not easy. Like a lot of my work is editing. They'll, they'll give me something somebody else wrote and they're like, it's okay, can you make it better? And it often takes me just as long as it would take me to, to write it from scratch. So even if ChatGPT is giving me something that's 90% of the way there, there's still a lot of work to be done, you know, getting it the, the rest of the way. And oftentimes with like something like copywriting, the difference between an email that makes $100,000 in sales and an email that makes, you know, two or three million dollars is five or ten words throughout the, the text. And it's just an incredibly subtle job for somebody to go in and figure out how to make those little changes that, that take it from okay to, to really, really good. And this is an optimistic scenario, but there could be many, many companies, just 
five-person startups or dental practices or something like that that never really had the budget for somebody like me. Uh, they couldn't pay me five grand a month to write their sales emails or something like that. But if they, if they can get their marketing off the ground with some cheap boilerplate from ChatGPT, they could make enough money to then hire somebody like me, right? So it wasn't feasible before because they didn't have the budget and the ROI was not very good. But if they can just throw out some blog posts and some emails with ChatGPT, somebody just pushing the button and, and hitting publish on it, well, if, if that leads to positive ROI, if they're making more money, then it would make sense for them to hire somebody like me. So I actually think it, it plausibly could lead to an expansion of job opportunities, at least for a while anyway. And then I've been toying with this idea, this concept um, that I call – I have two names for it. Sometimes I call it last mile engineering, and sometimes I call it long tail engineering, but they, they kind of get to the same idea. So a while back we interviewed Brad Templeton on autonomous vehicles. We went into that conversation pretty sanguine about the possibility of totally automating the process of driving and like delivering goods and stuff. Like, like there just would be no more truckers. And he explained to us that that's possible but probably what you're gonna actually see is more and more people handling the last mile of the process. So automating a truck driving 400 miles you know, down Highway 70 is not all that complicated, but getting it so that it can pull into the Walmart parking lot and back the trailer up to the, the door and not hit any kids or any shopping carts or not be confused by birds or trash, like that last part is all boundary cases. And Fully automating that bit is just really, really complicated and really, really difficult. And I think that there's going to be a while before we're totally done with that. And so what I imagine will happen with a lot of these things with writing computer software or writing content or you know, delivering goods, and goods via truck, more and more of it will be automated and we will be pushed out into the tails, right? So you're familiar with the normal distribution like IQ is normally distributed. Well, those tails out on the left and right, they're called tails. And so for certain distributions, you have what's called a long tail. It just goes way, way, way out to the left or right. And I think more and more of us will be working in those long tails. So when you want to, when you want to write software, you will not start with a blank page. You'll say, chat GPT, give me uh, a piece of software that runs an e-commerce business or something like that. But there's just going to be a lot of twiddling and bullshit that needs to be done before it's actually functional, right? There'll be little bugs you have to track down, and there'll be little things you've got to iron out. And it's not quite right. That's not quite the tone we want to do. Or it needs to integrate with this system, and there's no way to get it to do that uh, by asking the algorithm like a human's got to do that. I think more and more of it will just be that kind of thing. Like, we'll start with a first draft uh, with one of these generative AIs, but then we're, we're all going to be tinkering with it and getting it to work correctly. And I think that... There's pretty compelling evidence for that dynamic from both the work I do in editing. Like I said, I, I do a lot of work where somebody else wrote it. It's it's ready to publish, but it's just not it's not quite as good as I can make it. And so then they it's worth a lot of money to have me make it as good as it could be. Uh, and then with something like web development, we've been building websites for I don't know 30 or 40 years now. There, there are frameworks for generating every part of it. You know the HTML and the CSS and there's low code tools and no code tools. But somehow there's still like millions of web developers. There's just, there's always enough context for it to be worth hiring people. And I think that will maintain for a while. And it's a different question, what happens when that stops being the case, when the algorithms actually are so good that you, it's better than anything I could do. Uh, I think in, in, when you get to that point, you'll still need people to feed it the prompts, right? So your job will just essentially be, you'll, you'll be like a sorcerer, basically. You, you won't be writing the code you'll just be thinking of the way to ask the algorithm to get it to generate what you want. And I think there'll, there'll probably be a fair bit of work to do with that. On the other side of, uh, of that development, when the algorithms are running their own economies, um, it's a little harder to speculate about. But I, I'm not terribly worried about mass unemployment for, for the foreseeable future with generative AI. I think there's just going to be a lot of tinkering and twiddling and getting at that last mile. Uh, I think there's more than enough work for all of us to do for as long as I'm alive anyway. I see. I want to follow up on your point of um, being being smart AI. You you shared that the the real fear or the more dangerous AI would be the the smart AI. And and I want to gauge that your definition of smart is it access of information or, or the size of database, the size of information it has access to at the same time to land on a conclusion, which seems like ChatGPT already kind of are there. But are you, or are you talking about some sort of decision-making ability? 
or even something like conscious? How do you define smart? Yeah. So when I'm talking about superintelligences, I'm talking about general intelligences. So I am not worried about ChatGPT becoming conscious. I'm not worried about it making its own decisions. I'm not worried about any of those things. And I, I don't have a proof of this, but I strongly suspect it's not a data problem. I think it's probably more of an algorithmic problem. I, I think there's just something that happens in human cognition that gives us the ability to reason across a wide variety of different domains. There's all kind of, I mean, entire careers are spent thinking about how that would have evolved and what that would look like from a computer science perspective. There's computational neuroscience. There's people thinking really deeply about this. And I don't have much to add to that conversation, but it's pretty clear that humans are adaptable in a way that none of our systems are. Not, not our smartest systems could even begin to reason across the domains I could, let alone like a 10-year-old or even a 5-year-old. Um, you've got something like Watson that just stomped the best human Jeopardy players. But I mean, if you... You know, if you rolled it towards a lake, it wouldn't even know that it was in danger. Like, it just, it's very, very narrow and specialized. So when I'm talking about a superintelligence, I'm talking about something that is able to reason across a wide variety of domains in the same way that human beings are, and possibly even better, where you could send it to school or a math PhD program, or you could ask it to learn how to do plumbing, or trade the stock market, or learn Russian, or, you know, write a book, or uh, seduce a married woman, or hack a bank, you know, just, like, all these different skills, like, when you've got an algorithm that can kind of be turned towards anything the way that a reasonably bright person would and can figure it out iteratively, then I think you're talking about something entirely different. You're talking about for the first time in history, we would be sharing the planet with another general intelligence. And if you're talking about an algorithm that's able to recursively self-improve or that just starts off much smarter than we are, then I think many assumptions in economics or civilization or society start to look very different and start to look a lot weaker because we just we have no competition. There is nothing as smart as we are. As, for all we know, there may be nothing as smart as we are in the whole universe. And so if we make something that's as smart as we are or that's more intelligent than we are and it has a very different way of thinking about ethics or doesn't care at all about suffering, then you could really run into a lot of problems. In my opinion, it's, it's very much an open question how possible that is and how likely it's to come about in the next 50 or 100 years. I mean, I, I could see a plausible case being made for it not being that hard to make such a thing or for it being almost impossible to make such a thing. I could be convinced one way or another uh, on that. And so, I, you know, I don't think it's the sort of thing that you should lay awake at night worrying about, but it's probably worth having some smart people thinking about it. And there are some smart people thinking about it. And I, you know, I wish them the best of luck and I, I hope that they arrive at answers that are satisfactory for them. I've, uh, I've been forced to sort of rethink some of this as a result of a recent interview I did on the cutting edge podcast where we kind of got into some of these issues and they, they raised some pretty, I think good objections to my, um, to my position. Like my, definition of intelligence is really, really fuzzy. Like we, we need to kind of understand better what we're talking about there, whether or not something could even count as intelligent if it doesn't make decisions or have the, a human, like the equivalent of, of human free will, volition, whether or not it could make decisions without being conscious. I, I think probably it could, but th there may be some relationship there that's really deep and subtle that we don't understand well, uh, such that you can't have an intelligence equivalent to a human's without it also being conscious. And maybe there's something about neurons that are special. I, I'm not. Um, I went back and forth on this with what um, I had his book here. Can't remember his name, but he uh, he thought that neurons, like human neurons, are special in a way that silicon equivalents are not. And so you couldn't have a conscious computer in a way that you could have a, a conscious human being. I'm pretty skeptical about that. But you, I mean, you can see that there's lots of thorny philosophical issues there related to volition and consciousness and how you process information and how you reason across different domains. How has your kind of academic discipline and your experience in the scientific world affected you on parenting in any way? Yeah, well, I, I guess I take a, a pretty, I don't know the right word for it, systematic approach to parenting. So I, because I have a background in psychology and I was a teacher for a couple of years in South Korea, so I taught six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and like 15-year-olds and 17-year-olds, you know, so I've just interacted with kids at a lot of different ages and kind of seen the errors they run into, and I learned how to motivate them and kind of fuel the, fa the fires of their curiosity and things like that, which has been really helpful. Between that and my psych background and then just having given a lot of talks, I'm pretty good at explaining things, and I, I know that it's important not to just shovel information into a person. They need to arrive at a conclusion. So 
Uh, it's really more relevant for my daughter. She's five and a half. She'll be six in a couple of months. My son's three. I'm doing stuff with him now, but he's still he's still kind of early. So it's mostly just I just try to be excited when he's excited for the most part, and I like ask him questions. I'm like, look at this one. You know, I draw his attention to different things. I'm not really doing anything particularly tricky with her, with him, but with her, I am doing stuff that's probably worth relaying. And a lot of it boils down to two things. I, I try to get her to use her mind in a characteristic way, and then I try to draw her attention to the fact that it's operating that way. So, for example, uh, this is my favorite example of uh, of this process in action. Like, I, I came home, I don't know, a month ago, maybe five weeks ago, and she was sitting in the living room playing with her brother's train set. And, you know, like, with a train, the tracks can go different ways, and you, like, flip a little lever, and it goes over here, and then you flip it over this way, and it goes over there. And she says, look, Daddy, it's magic. And I said, it's not magic, it's engineering. And I was like, well, let's understand how it works, right? So first of all, it's, it's getting her not to call something magic, which is it's pretty harmless for a five-year-old girl. You know, it's, it's like I'm not, I'm not trying to beat it out of her. But, you know, I, I don't want – like, I, I want her to understand that, that she can understand how things work and that there's a process to it. And if you just look at it and, and play around with it and see how, like, the parts connect, usually you can reason it out. You can usually figure out what's going on. Like, I want her to understand that she has that power and that it's not some mystical gift that, that has to come from somewhere else. So I said, okay, well, let's look at it, you know. So we, we look at it, and like, see this little lever? Like, when I move this lever, it, it changes the direction of the tracks, right? And so, like, let's turn it over and look inside of it. Like, you see how it's, it's like, this part's grabbing this part so that when you flip it down, it moves your arm that way. And I was like, uh, like, let, let's go through the steps. So then I had her explain it to me. It's like, explain to me how this works, you know. And so she's like, well, there's the lever. It's the connection, you know. And so she kind of walks through it, and it's like, you know, grab my arm and show me how it works. And so, and so she did. And then I said, uh, give me other examples of something like this working. And she's like, well, it's, it's kind of like spreading peanut butter on toast. You got the knife and you move it. And I was like, yeah, that's a pretty good one. And she came up with a couple of others that I like too, but I don't remember them. And I said, okay, now, do you see what we just did? Like, we understood a mechanism by examining this system and breaking it apart and saying, okay, this connects to that. And when, like, we notice these correlations and we can build sort of a causal understanding of the way it works. And then we looked for other places where that would be operative. Like, we tried to expand that into a, a broader, more abstract understanding. So by understanding this one thing, we're also able to reason about systems that are causally similar, that are set up in a similar sort of way. I mean, I didn't say all those words to her, but I, that's kind of what I tried to get her to understand. And I, I think that's basically the process of human cognition, is that we, we, we can understand the way a particular system works, and then we reason about similar sorts of cases, and we group those into progressively broader abstractions. So you, at first you just got raw sensations like hot or cold, and then somehow you build up from just that to justice and peace and democracy. Like those concepts are made up of you know, like subsidiary concepts, which are made up of other subsidiary concepts, getting progressively more primitive until you're all the way down to just things you see and sense and taste. And so I'm just trying to, to get her to do that, to build up those abstractions. And in a gentle sort of way, I'm trying to get her to see that she's doing that so that she understands that cognition is a, a process she can intervene in, that, she can, that there are better and worse ways of doing it, and she has a certain amount of control over that. And I'm just trying to draw her attention to that. So I, I do that all the time with, with stuff. And then I, I, I emphasize the, the importance of her mind. I always tell her, it's like, you know, your mind is, is your most important thing. You have to learn how to use it because it's the source of all your values and all the power you'll ever have. So I think all of that is is worth emulating uh, with with kids. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. And and I always I always tell her, you know, like she she's fascinated by the moon. I was like, well, people go there, and you you could go there. Like you you have to be an engineer, you know. Or she she's really interested in, in different kinds of science and math. And I think she's uh, I think she's learning to manipulate me with it, because she knows that if if she asks me to teach her science or math, I won't send her to bed. And so if it's getting kind of late in the day and she doesn't want to go to bed, she's like, will you teach me some math or read the science book to me? Because she knows I won't say no to that. So I'm not sure how much of it's genuine interest and how much of it is her just uh, playing me for a, for a fool, but I, I, I'm here for it either way. And then, of course, I just I buy her books and I, I show her plants and trees and I try to, try to get her to do the same thing. Like, well, how would this work? You know, like, like, how do you think this functions? Like, paint me a picture. And they're like, okay, well, is that true? Let's go look at it. Let's poke it and see how it reacts. And uh, hopefully she'll just develop those those basic habits of rationality that will carry her through life. I think if, if you instill it early on and it becomes a natural way of functioning, it's really pretty powerful. All right. Thanks, Trent. 
And、uh, thank you so much, Trent, for joining me today. And on this first ever episode of Live with Bitcoin,、uh, really appreciate the massive support you've lent so far. And、uh, for those of you who want to follow Trent's work, you can find him on Twitter at Trent underscore Steppunk. And his Futurati podcast focusing on artificial intelligence, cryptocurrency, space exploration, quantum computing, biotechnology, and a variety of other topics of interest to futurists. Trent, any final words you want to share with our growing audience? As you're the first guest on the show. No, I really appreciate the invite. This was a lot of fun.、Uh, it was probably the most in-depth interview I've done, and I really appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck. I think you're gonna. Succeed wildly and, and accomplish great things. All right, thanks, Trent. Hope all of that come true. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Vivian Chain, and this is Life with Bitcoin podcast. See you in next episode.